Welcome to ICANN, a podcast about ophthalmology through a uniquely Canadian lens with Dr. Cedare Ziai and myself, Dr. Guillermo Rocha. We'll share our experiences as ophthalmologists today and tackle some challenges we face as healthcare providers. Are you ready, Cedare? Let's do it, Guillermo. On this episode of ICANN, we're joined by Dr. Clara Chan. Dr. Chan is a physician who wears many hats. She is a specialist in cornea, cataract, and refractive surgery, an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the University of Toronto, and she's the former chair of the Resident Surgical Teaching Committee. She teaches fellows as part of the Cornea Fellowship Program at the Toronto Western Hospital, and she's the medical director of the iBank of Canada, Ontario Division. Dr. Chan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. We were just talking about, uh, it was almost a year ago that we were sitting together at a forum, a national cornea forum, to see how we could improve and change things in uh, corneal donation and transplantation. Of course, a lot of things have changed in the past year. So as the director of the iBank of Canada, Ontario Division, what are some of the greatest challenges that you have faced First, before the pandemic, and how have you had to adapt your systems, your processes after the pandemic or during the pandemic? Thanks for that question, Guillermo. Uh, so interestingly, before the pandemic, we had this meeting um, among, you know, across Canada with iBank um, directors, medical directors, hospital representatives, um, government representatives, patients, and we came up with these ideas on how to really improve tissue donation across the country. And it was almost opportune that we had that opportunity because we did use a lot of what was discussed to really um, interact with everybody as a whole when this crisis hit. I'll start by answering things we were working on and challenges that we had prior to COVID hitting. Uh, We had just transitioned our provincial tissue recovery uh, services from the iBank to be managed by Trillium Gift of Life, which is our provincial organ and tissue recovery organization. And so we had to help train their technicians and develop their training programs and processes. Um, And really their technicians were being trained to do in situ processing, which is where the recovery of taking the scleral corneal rim happens on site uh, with the donor um, cadaver body instead of just retrieving the whole globe and then sending it to the iBank and then having us process it from the iBank there. And the reason we wanted to switch to in situ for the majority of our recoveries was that this reduces the death to preservation time significantly. Um, So it erases that whole travel time, which increases that number. Um, And having that decreased death to preservation time really allowed us to use tissue more efficiently and effectively Um, and it wouldn't time out as quickly. And so just luckily we had already done this and we were able to still use tissue when we had to completely shut down our iBank services um, when when COVID hit. Uh, So the other thing that we were working on was we were ramping up our pre-stripped DMEC program. And so we were able to prepare DMEC tissue that was pre-stripped, send it out to surgeons and really take the pressure off of the surgeons in terms of preparing the tissue on their surgery day. 
So this way, the surgeons could just focus on getting the tissue ready as quickly as possible and not worry about tearing um, the tissue or having it rip and then not having any backup tissue. Once the pandemic uh, hit us and we had to actually shut down the eye bank for a full week, we were worried that there was a possible staff exposure in fact, and so everyone had to be sent home for work and we couldn't recover any tissues, we couldn't process any tissues or send out anything. And so during that week, we had a chance and had time to sort of rethink the processes that were taking place. Um, there were phone calls between all the eye banks across Canada with Canadian Blood Services, um, other tissue banks who were in the same position. Um, and so we had a chance to really learn from each other. And this became a weekly call where we got to just learn together and figure out how COVID was going to affect all of us. Um, in terms of how we had to adjust um, our iBank processes since then, uh, certainly we had to develop actually as well um, a program to uh, preserve the cornea tissue in alcohol, in fact. And so that allowed us to have at least tectonic cornea tissue available for cases where there's a perforation and, you know, we were worried that we wouldn't have tissue supply and at least we would be able to provide that type of tissue for surgeons to use um, in emergencies. Um, also, our guidelines for deciding what tissue that was suitable had been changed quite quickly. Like the iBank Association of America released guidelines for us to rule out tissue from donors who had symptoms of COVID or um, potential exposure to COVID. And these restrictions have really reduced our donor supply as well. And so we've certainly had to just pivot and share more tissue across the country. Um, we used to typically be able to purchase from the US, but that was also limited too because of all the high numbers in the US. So um, at one point there was a COVID outbreak at one of the US border crossings in the office there and they had to shut that office. And so even though we wanted to order tissue, the tissue couldn't get to us uh, in time for surgeries um, because of a COVID outbreak in one of the border crossings. Um, so certainly there's been hiccups along the way and we've sort of gotten to learn more and more about how COVID affects tissue donation. And um, certainly as a team, we've been able to adapt to ensure that the tissue that's distributed remains safe and high quality. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us, Clara. I have two questions actually in follow-up to some of the things you've just said. So for those who are listening who are maybe less familiar with cornea tissue donation, um, my first question is, why did you have to preserve the cornea as an alcohol as opposed to what you were normally preserving them in? And my second question is, do you need to do a more thorough inspection of the donated tissues now with COVID or um, is it just the screening um, at the time of death? So the first question about uh, why we chose alcohol to preserve tissue in for longer term use, um, a couple of reasons. The optazole, which is the pink solution that you'll typically see when you get the cornea um, sent to you, uh, that optazole has uh, antibacterial agents in it and nutritional agents. And so that um, over a long period of time can potentially actually lead to, um, you know, it may not actually 
keep bacteria growth completely away because there is the extra nutrient supply in there. So it's meant so, for shorter term use. Then. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's for shorter term. Um, in terms of cryopreservation was another alternative that we looked at. Uh, but in terms of how the tissue behaved and looked like after it was cryopreserved, uh, we weren't as familiar with the outcomes of that. But with alcohol processing, we are very familiar with it because that's how we process and store sclera tissue. Uh, and that gets sent out to our glaucoma surgeons. And so just using that those standards of practice, we were able to pivot and basically use similar ideas for cornea preservation. Um, your second question about um, in terms of what we do for inspection of the donated tissue. Uh, certainly, you know, with any cornea tissue, we're looking primarily at the endothelial cell quality, the endothelial cell number, making sure there's no scars on the cornea. Um, like if there's cataract incisions, we want to make sure they're very peripheral and not damaging the cornea uh, centrally. Um, and any other abnormalities that there might be. Uh, so that has not changed. Um, what, ha what we have added is actually more on the donor assessment side. So we actually perform COVID PCR testing on our deceased donors. Uh, some people were wondering if those tests were actually validated for um, deceased donors, like a deceased person, but they are. So we worked with the microbiologist um, team at Mount Sinai Hospital who does all our serology for us. And, you know, they, they know everything about COVID tests and whatnot. And so we were able to find a COVID test that uh, is suitable to be used for deceased donors. Initially, it was tough because we were just short on tests across the province. And I don't know if you remember, but just hearing about in the news that they couldn't even test as many people who wanted to get tested. Um, and so there was the debate as to should we be using uh, COVID tests that could be going to test people who are really at risk for spreading it to their families or worrying about being at work and spreading it to their um, co-workers? Uh, should we be using those you know, very precious few tests that we had on the donors to be to test them. Um, but when it came down to just weighing the risks and benefits to the recipients, um, we felt that it was important to um, do the extra COVID testing on the deceased donors just to be safe. That's great, Clara. I'd like to touch on two of the points that you've mentioned. And one is the aspect of all these phone calls that started happening right after uh, COVID hit um, in terms of not just the ocular tissue, but also in the more expanded tissue, as well as organ donation and transplantation. Um, and one thing that, that came out, which is the second point you commented on donors, is, is that responsibility that we have in this system when we're working within the uh, donation community and also as surgeons to respect the wishes of uh, the donor family, the, 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 the people who have decided also to donate their tissues. So what, what kind of things did you notice in, during the initial stages of the pandemic in terms of respecting that wish to donate? Because ultimately these are gifts that we're getting as surgeons and gifts that our patients are getting uh, to improve their quality of life. Certainly all the families that were approached for donation um, and who agreed to have their loved ones um, gift live on, uh, they were very understanding of these new questions that had to be added on. And so there's questions such as, you know, did the um, deceased donor have any contact with anyone uh, that was potentially COVID positive? Did they travel in the last 
you know, month or so, uh, or 14 days is actually the more strict cutoff. Um, did they have any symptoms themselves that were potentially at risk for COVID, things like that. Um, and so given that nobody really knew enough about COVID to be certain about it, I think even though these family members were wanting to provide their loved one's tissue as donation, they understood that if there was a risk that, you know, potentially the, the tissue may only be used for research or teaching. Um, and we still take lots of donations for that purpose as well. Um, we process over 4,000 tissues at our iBank every year, and the, not all of them go are suitable or, or go to actual recipient, um, you know, for corneal transplantation. A lot of it is used for teaching and research as well. And so there is still a need there. ICANN wants to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at cos-sco.ca and we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes. Hi, this is Stephanie Baxter. Um, I'm a corneal specialist at Queen's University, uh, intimately involved with CBME implementation, and I listen to I Can Podcast. So we talked a little bit about the challenges that the iBank has faced with covid um, do, can you think of any opportunities that COVID might have unveiled or, or exposed that we may not have noticed um, had it not been for the pandemic? Anything positive that came out of this experience or that's coming out of this experience? I love how we keep talking about COVID like it's in the past. <laughs> not quite yet, but um, what, have we, what, are the good, what are the good things that happened with regards to iBank and tissue donation and the way things are functioning, at least at the iBank in Toronto? Well, I think definitely there's been a slowdown or there was a huge slowdown in the numbers of transplants. You know, elective surgery programs were put on hold for much of the spring last year. Um, and then even during the sort of slow ramp up, our volumes of transplants have, you know, have not reached what they were equal to in 2019 or 2018. Similarly, donations have also um, not matched what previous years have been in the same time period. Um, and so this sort of downturn in terms of volume really has given our iBank a chance to sort of work on other projects that we had uh, wanted to spend more time with our staff developing standards of practice um, to develop. So for example, we've been able to now develop sort of 10 by 10 centimeter amniotic membrane uh, product for st acute Stevens-Johnson syndrome patients that can be ordered as an emergency basis um, instead of piecing together small little like two by two centimeter pieces. Um, we also uh, are working on like a frozen whole globe program to try to expand our sclera supply. Um, and we're also working on a preloaded, pre-stripped, pre-punched, pre-marked DMEC uh, program as well. So really just trying to take DMEC preparation to the next level and have it prepared for surgeons. And that takes a lot of, you know, extra planning and testing and validation. Um, and then also in anticipation of the increased demand for DMEC, uh, we built, we took this time to actually build out 
an extra sort of mini OR uh, tissue preparation suite so that we could have more than just one technician pre-stripping and preparing the DMEC tissue um, at any given time. Clara, you know, for many years, we've been hearing about shortages of tissue donation, not just corneas, but organs in general. And uh, we have heard of other countries having different types of programs, like an opt-out program, whereas in Canada, it's always been an opt-in program. Do you know, um, in your discussions with um, directors across the country, is there any, are there any talks about this changing in Canada, or are we happy the way it is now? I think we're, we've been pretty lucky in terms of tissue supply. There are weeks where, unfortunately, you know, lately, especially with COVID, we've had to cancel some cases due to shortage of tissue. And, you know, when, when we have enough donors, it's great. But there are times where we're cutting it pretty close in terms of being able to provide tissue for all the surgeons that ask for it. And it'll be interesting because looking at... Um, for example, in Nova Scotia, they now have a precedent set where they are actually an opt-out program, meaning that residents automatically are considered for tissue and organ donation unless they opt out on the government website. Um, now, what they ran into was that they didn't have enough technicians to go out to actually recover when all these people were suited for donation. So that's sort of another hiccup where, you know, you could have a lot of donor supply, but without enough technicians to gather the tissue, then uh, you run into a roadblock there. And I believe now New Brunswick is also considering this motion. Um, I think it is controversial for some. So I don't see every single province following suit, but it is one way to, you know, increase donor supply for sure. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention was that uh, if there are any patients uh, who have had a cornea transplant and are willing to provide testimonials, for example, uh, we love to get their names because we can film or interview them. And we use those testimonials not only for advocacy, but also for staff training and to empower our staff to really, you know, understand that these are are um, people, these are who's benefiting from their efforts. Um, and also even just to show the, the technician who's, you know, in the morgue doing the grunt work, um, they can see sort of what the end result is. Um, so having any patients who are willing to provide kind of video or recorded um, testimonials or any written letters even. So um, they can, we, we can't reveal who the donor is by name, but we can often pass on the message from the recipient to the donor in a anonymous fashion. Um, yeah, there's actually also an interesting group and in, a research group in Alberta who have been able to develop a cryopreservation method that allows endothelial cells to actually remain viable in sheets. Um, they, they don't have a commercial partner yet. So that's, I believe they're looking for one, but this is exciting technology. So potentially, you know, if we have a, a time of tissue shortage, but we have these sheets of endothelium that are cryopreserved and are ready to be used, um, you know, this might actually be an alternative to the more expensive cell culture techniques um, that are a bit more difficult to set up. 
There's so many moving parts, Clara, in um, in the process, right? From the donation all the way to the processing. And even, even what you said about opting out, I mean, one intermediate aspect of that would be the mandatory rep uh, reporting, which also was faced at times with the lack of infrastructure to set it up in motion, right? So, so it's so important to have that infrastructure, that education and preparation of the technicians to um, continue with the, uh, with the supply of tissue. Yeah, and I think that came about in Ontario um, a few years ago because it was actually a law that got enacted where hospitals uh, were mandated to report uh, any patient who passed away. And that name got passed on to Trillium Gift of Life and then their team of, um, you know, phone specialists would then reach out to the family to go through the question. Um, so then you have a team of people who are trained just to go by this script and be comfortable with it rather than depending on the ICU nurse who might have just happened to have heard a talk about donation two years ago and remembered that, oh, perhaps this family, I should mention it to them that that's a possibility. So to have the infrastructure and to have it into this built into the systems and to use it as a metric for hospitals that hospitals have to actually report and say like, you know, 90% of our, um, patients who passed away were referred to Trillium Gift of Life as potential donors. Well, the number is supposed to be a hundred percent. So to have that built in as a metric for hospitals and their evaluations, um, I think really uh, forces everybody to pitch in. Yeah. So it's amazing. I mean, uh, the, the concept of the iBank has evolved from that kind of a uh, depository of tissue into something that's very, very active. You're talking already about preparing DMEC, and uh, we hear a lot about uh, cell cultures. What what can you tell us about in terms of you know ocular surface ex vivo um, augmentation of cells, and also uh, what we're all waiting for, right? The endothelial cultures for um, endothelial failure. Where where are we going with that? Is it realistic for us to see it in Canada? So there's a couple layers of the cornea where there are cells that can be expanded ex vivo. So the epithelial layer essentially comes from the limbal stem cells. And so there are um, ways to culture the stem cells in order to lay it on amnion, for example, and then a patient could lay it on the eye surface and then um, reproliferate their epithelial layer from these harvested and expanded stem cells. Um, and then the second part would be the endothelial layer, uh, where there is the ability to also expand them in culture. Um, so for example, one cornea potentially could provide enough um, endothelial cells for 200 recipients uh, as each of the aliquots of cells are expanded and stored. Um, and so those, both those um, methods of tissue and cell expansion require very highly regulated laboratories, which are quite expensive uh, to set up and maintain. And so we did look into this. In Toronto, there is a, it's called a GMP lab. Um, that does islet cells. So for pancreas, they've developed an islet cell expansion program there. And so we had looked into potentially using one of their lab spaces uh, because they're already GMP uh, regular accredited, uh, but it, it would cost upwards of, you know, a few million dollars. Um, and our volumes are just right now not 
really enough to support that. Plus, luckily, we, in at least Canada, we typically do have enough cornea tissue um, to to recover. So, you know, to recover or to you to get one cornea tissue to prepare to transplant into a recipient, the cost of that is significantly less than trying to, de to develop this whole cell culture expansion program. Um, you know, I think there's a role in the future potentially as, as we know and more about the technology and it becomes more reliable um, and the, the, the basic science techniques are more reproducible. Because right now there's maybe a few centers in the world that can do it, but then once they take that recipe and bring it to a different location, it's very challenging to replicate. And so once we see that the way that the cells can be expanded and stored can be done in a more economical fashion, in a more reliable fashion, um, then potentially in the future, we could see maybe one or two sites, you know, on either coast of Canada, providing enough cell culture material and cells to distribute to the rest of, you know, the country. So along the same lines, Clara, what, what about artificial corneas? We've been reading more and more about artificial corneas uh, experiments from overseas, and it, sound, it all sounds very exciting. What's your professional opinion on what's in the pipeline with regards to artificial tissue? Yeah, it's been exciting. We've heard some reports of new, what's called a keratoprosthesis is an artificial cornea. So currently still the most common artificial cornea used is the Boston type one keratoprosthesis, which does require lamellar, you know, it doesn't have to be um, excellent cell quality cornea tissue. Um, it just needs a piece of cornea to carry the plastic optic and the titanium base. And that gets sewn into the recipient. Um, so right now, because the quality of that cornea tissue isn't as crucial, and we do have luckily enough tissue supply for that level of, um, of quality, uh, you know, right now, we, we can still supply enough tissue to provide for Boston type one keratoprosthesis implants. Um, but there are a lot of risks associated with it, as you know, um, you know, risk for infections and melts and extrusions. Um, so there is a new novel, it's a novel artificial cornea that's been developed in Israel. And right now it's undergoing some Health Canada review where cornea tissue is not required. And so it's designed with a seven millimeter kind of plastic optic with a skirt that's made of a proprietary material. And that skirt part gets sewn into the eye and then it incorporates into the sclera as blood vessels and the conjunctiva grow into it. And so we are hopefully going to be able to start doing trials at the Toronto Western Hospital once the company is able to get through some of the Health Canada um, hoops that they have to jump through since it's not an approved product. Uh, but once we are able to start conducting our trial, I'll be able to share more. So Clara, I mean, that's all very, very exciting stuff. And if it were up to you, um, and I would say almost in a way it is up to you because you're, you're so involved in different aspects, the clinical, the surgical aspects, as well as the administrative um, processes for, the, for eye banking. What, what would be your ideal situation for Canada, for patients, for surgeons? And uh, where you think, what, 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 are, what do you think are still the challenges that we're facing? There's always challenges with any system, I think. And uh, one of the issues right now is I would say that we're lucky in Ontario in that we have a 
very established, fairly well-funded iBank where we do have these opportunities to um, expand programs. And for example, we just were able to purchase a uh, anterior segment OCT, uh, which will allow us to give more uh, detailed analysis of tissue that sometimes just on slit lamp exam is is difficult to diagnose. Um, it'll g- allow us to do more accurate thickness measurements. So when something is pre-cut, we can be much more specific in terms of telling the surgeon exactly what thickness the cornea, you know, lamellar part that they're transplanting will will measure. Uh, things like that. So that'll help us really guide our nano thin or even, you know, ultra thin um, endothelial keratoplasties. Uh, but I think just coming from Ontario, seeing how other provinces also have their eye bank set up, um, you know, not, not every province necessarily can just book an OR, order the tissue and typically expect to get it on that day. It might be more challenging. So one thing I would hope to see is that there's maybe more equitable distribution of tissue throughout the country. And so that the provinces that do have more and are more established in terms of their supply chain and things like that are able to help the provinces where it may not be as easily accessible to get tissues all the time. Um, And this would just help with you know, serving the patients, which is what it comes down to. Um, so that patients, for example, you know, in, in Manitoba don't necessarily have to wait as long as they are right now. Um, and that it's just easier for the surgeons to plan for the OR, um, things like that. Um, so just sort of sharing knowledge and sharing tissue and technology across the country um, and having a more um, kind of team effort mentality would be nice. I think a lot of it, unfortunately, right now, the province's healthcare is all funded provincially. And so there's some limitations with that. Uh, But we had this meeting with Canadian Blood Services, and that's a national organization. So I think they're, you know, with the help with them and and sort of all the different I-banks working together across the country, um, now that we have great lines of communication amongst everyone, um, I'm hoping to see that in the future. Thank you. Excellent points, Clara. Clara, I just want to say that as a cornea specialist in Ontario, I have certainly seen um, the services from the iBank grow and thrive under your directorship. And I want to thank you for all of the innovations that you've brought forward. And it seems as though there's some real teamwork going on at the iBank. And we've just been so pleased with um the ability to communicate so well with your team over there in Toronto and our patients have benefited so greatly from the, the progress um, of the tissues and the service provided from the iBank. And I, I want to congratulate you on how well you've done as, as the director of, of the program. Thank you. I mean, it's not just me, really. We have a great, you know, daily director who's there with with the team and a great team of technicians and part-time, full-time people. Uh, So it really is a team effort from the ground up. But thank you. So Clara, I think it's been a pleasure having you. uh, First, because you're a fellow cornea specialist. 
a really good friend to uh, both Saturday and myself as well. And uh, it's just so great to to sort of have a chance to to see your perspective on things. Oftentimes at meetings, it's very, very quick. And uh, it, it's just been great to get your insights and the direction that you're taking this. And I'm, I'm just excited to see where we're going in terms of our cornea sessions, as well as the eye banking issues in the future uh, with your direction. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Clara Chan, for joining us, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes. Here's what's coming up on our next episode. Hey, it's Ike Ahmed here. I'm from the University of Toronto Prism Institute, and it's a pleasure to be here uh, on the ICANN podcast with my great friends, uh, Guillermo and Saturday. Uh, I've been part of Canadian ophthalmology for a long time and very proud to be part of uh, the membership. Um, so many great things that come out of this country and uh, I can't think of anywhere else in the world I want to be other than being here and looking forward to having this discussion. Uh, as many of you know, I've had a focus in glaucoma and complex cataract surgery, but knowing these two um, interviewers, I have no idea where this is going to go. So I'm looking forward to this. wants to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at cos-sco.ca and we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes. The iTunes podcast is funded by MDF Affinity Grant. It is brought to you by the Canadian Ophthalmological Society directed by Eric Johnson and produced by John Allaire from Allaire Strategic Works.